know it's probably weird to carry an ice scraper uh, when it's 80 degrees or 90 degrees outside, but I'll explain why I have that in a couple moments. Uh, it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, last couple weeks, Joel was preaching in this series, uh, preaching on the fear of man, uh, and then also the fear of suffering and, and dying. And I would encourage you, if you missed either of those Sundays, to, to go back to our Keystone Church podcast or Keystone Church Online and, and listen to those messages. Uh, thought they did a tremendous job of dealing with some of the things that we are most fearful of as we go through this life. Uh, This morning, we're wrapping up our series on fear. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Numbers uh, chapter 13 and 14. It's kind of where we'll be this morning along with some other passages. Um, But one one of the challenges, I think, of really any sermon series, uh, and maybe especially a series dealing with fear, the fears we have in this life, as well as the fear of God, uh, is that there's just not nearly enough time to cover everything. There's no way that we could hit on all the Bible has to say about fear, all the fears that we have, or or all the different passages that talk about the fear of God. And so I want to recommend to you some farther resources this morning, if you're interested. Uh, I recommend four books. Uh, These are four books we have down in our library in the fellowship hall. Uh, Laura's set them up kind of in a group behind uh, the desk that you could rent them, check them out. Uh, And we've referenced some of these in the series as well. The first is a book uh, by Michael Reeves called Rejoice and Tremble, uh, the surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. Uh, Second is the, the joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. Uh, third is When People Are Big and God is Small. I guess a lot of you have already read that book because we've referenced that many times at Keystone. Uh, and then the fourth one, I don't have a physical copy of, I have a digital, but it's called A Holy Fear, Trading Lesser Fears for the Fear of the Lord. And so I, I would encourage you, if this series has been uh, used by God in any way to help you in areas that you are fearful of, Uh, These would be great resources to go farther into, to dive into more. And and you'll likely hear some of what you've heard throughout the series. Uh, Not because the authors of these books have been listening in on our sermon series. Uh, Last time I checked, I don't think Ed Welch is subscribed to our sermon podcast. But rather because these books have influenced why we've done this series and and what we've said throughout this series. So I encourage you to, to check those out. I want to start this morning by kind of comparing this series uh, and what we've been trying to do in this series to to the object that I brought up here that I'm sure many of you are familiar with and have used if you drive a car. Uh, This this is a ice scraper. Uh, It's a huge one. I told my wife I I should have got a smaller one. It's massive. But uh, what what is the purpose of an ice scraper? I think that, that's obvious. The answer to that is obvious. You, an ice scraper is used to scrape frost or ice off of your windshield of your car so that you can see through it clearly. And, and maybe we might think of the, the fears we have in this life, like being frost that kind of covers the, the windshield of our lives and makes it unable for us to see anything beyond them. That, that the fear of uncertainty makes, it, uh, makes us unable to see the future. That the fear of man maybe makes it only possible for us to see other people and what they think and their opinions and, and what they can do. Or, or the fear of suffering maybe has us fixate on all the pain that we might face in this life. And, and all these fears and more can just kind of consume us 
and make it impossible for us to see past them. And, and part of what we've tried to do in this series is to scrape away at those fears so that we might see clearly God, both how big he is and how good he is. But, but if you think again with me about this, an ice scraper, there, there's both an obvious purpose to scrape away the ice so you can see, but there's also a more ultimate purpose. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? No one, or, or I would guess hardly anyone, goes out to their car and scrapes away the ice and the frost and then walks back inside and sits down on the couch and says, thank goodness the ice is gone, I can relax. You scrape away the ice and the frost so that you can get in your car and drive somewhere, go somewhere. In, in the exact same way, this series has meant to have both an obvious purpose that maybe we focused on more and then a more ultimate purpose as well. And, and the obvious purpose has been this, and I hope God's used it in this way, that, that hopefully maybe it's helped in some small way to, to calm the anxieties that rage within us, to bring some sense of stillness to the fearful waves and storms in our hearts and minds. To, to inject peace in our lives, as we've seen how great God is. And, and yet there's also this more ultimate purpose, a greater purpose than just alleviating fear and helping us to experience peace. And, and it's this, that we might be freed to live with a type of fearlessness and take risks with our lives. That, that the end goal of this series isn't just to have us be able to say, whew, I don't need to be afraid. I can sit back now. But rather to step out and live and say, I can take risks and be courageous because I don't have to fear. Or, or another way to put that is this. The fear of God frees us to take risks with our lives. The final fear we're going to be looking at this morning is the, the fear of failure. The fear of failing. Fear of failure is what would keep us from making some decision, trying some new endeavor, seeking to reach some goal, or just stepping out in any way at all because we're afraid I might fail and fall flat on my face. Fear of failure can prevent us from all sorts of things. It can keep a, a child from riding a bike out of fear that I might scrape my knees and fall. It can keep a student from trying out for a sports team out of fear of I, I might not make the team. It can keep a guy from asking a girl out out of fear of I might get turned down and rejected. It can keep a young adult from moving out of his parents' basement because it might not work out. A family from moving because this move might not work out from us. A, an adult from changing jobs. A person from trying to make new friendships, new relationships, and, and more and more and more. And, and maybe more significantly, or, or definitely more significantly, a fear of failure can keep us from following Christ in the ways that God wants us to. Like a, a fear of failure can keep us from trying to read through the Bible because we're afraid I might fail and not make it all the way through. So why try? It, it can keep us from attempting to show hospitality to neighbors and strangers, because, well, it might be awkward and it might go really bad. It, it can keep us from speaking up about our faith in Christ, because, 
Well, I might stumble and fumble and sound dumb. It, it can keep us from serving in ministry because, well, maybe I won't be good at that. It can keep us from attempting to disciple our kids because may, maybe I'll screw that up. It can keep us from praying with other people because maybe what I say will sound dumb and all sorts of other things. And, and it can keep us from the individual things that God might call you or me to do in our lives, just the specific things. It can keep us from pursuing foster care or adoption. It can keep us from starting a new business to supply jobs with it. It can keep us from pursuing missions and, and all sorts of other things that maybe God would call you individually to or me individually to. Fear of failure is ultimately what can keep us from taking risk with our lives. And so keep us from growing, from living for God, and from actually experiencing the joy he has in store for us in this life and in the future. This is exactly what we see happening in the story we're going to look at this morning in Numbers 13 and 14, a story about the Israelites as they stand on the verge of entering the land that God's promised to give them for so many years. And what they do is that they first send in spies to check out this land and see what it's like and, and see who the nations are and how they might fight against them. And we're going to jump in in Numbers 13, verse 31, uh, where the spies are bringing back their report to all the people. And so Numbers 13, we'll read from verse 31 up through chapter 14, verse 10. Then the men who had gone up with him, speaking of Caleb there, said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they'd spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before, before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of the Israel. God, we pray that you would help us again this morning to fix our eyes on you, to see how great and how good you are, and that the type of fears that might keep us captive and enslaved and not willing to risk for both your glory and our good, that you would free us from those fears. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That story 
is a tragedy. That story is an incredible tragedy that we read. We just read a, a part of it. But, but think about it with me. The Israelites spent 430 years in Egypt waiting for God to fulfill his promise to them and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would give them their own land and their own home. Many of those years they spent enslaved and, and God's brought them out. And now for the, over the past year, they've been in the wilderness as God's prepared them and provided for them. And now they stand literally on the doorstep about to walk into this land that God said, I'm going to give it to you. And instead they shrink back in fear, fail to take the land. And as a result, they're going to spend the next 40 years of their lives wandering through the wilderness. Like this story is an absolute tragedy. And it's a picture of the type of tragedy that fear of failure can lead to in my life and in your life as well. The tragedy is that fear of failure can lead to a failure to live well in this life. Fear of failure can lead to a failure to live well. When I was a middle schooler, one of my older brothers was really into extreme sports and so kind of got me and some neighbor kids into extreme sports as well. And he built this like quarter pipe in our backyard as well as a bike track, a dirt bike track, complete with ramps with gaps in between them. And so if you want to picture it, I've got a picture of that's not me, that's not our track, ours didn't look that cool, but maybe a little bit like that. And as a middle schooler, I, I was afraid of hitting those ramps because I would look at the gap and, and, and I would think I might not clear the gap or maybe I'll go too far and I might crash and fall and hurt myself and so I should probably just avoid it and go to the side and not hit this. That, that's what a fear of failure does to us in some ways. It has us look at some decision, some step, some action, and say, this might not go well for you. You might not clear that gap. You might crash and fall and get hurt. You should probably just play it safe and bypass that with your life. Isn't that exactly what the spies are saying? We might not be able to take this land. The people in there, they, they might crush us. We might crash and burn. We should probably just play it safe and not try to enter this land that God is asking us to enter. But, but if that's how we live, we actually miss out on living in this life. I mean, even with that example, in kind of a small way, when I refused to hit those bike ramps, I missed out on the joy of flying through midair on my bike. And far greater when the Israelites failed to go into the land, they missed out on the joy that God had promised them if they would have taken this land he was going to give to them. We tend to think of trying something and failing at it as the worst tragedy. That we picture some decision or some action or some step and we think if I try that and I would fail at it, that would be the worst but trying and failing is not the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy is that we wouldn't try at all out of fear that I might fail and hurt myself or be harmed. If you're someone struggling to make a decision in your own life because of the risk involved, 
or wrestling with some step of obedience to God because you might fail or neglecting to do something you you think God is calling me to to do because it, it might not go well. The great trouble is not that we would actually try it and fail or fall. The great trouble is that we would never try it out of fear that I might fail and screw it up. Now, if you agree with that, the the rest of this message in some ways is meant to liberate us from the fear of failure so that we might be freed to take risks with our lives. And I want to do that just in, in two ways, really. It's to first of all help us see what are some of the things that are behind the fear of failure. That there is this way of viewing life, I think, or this focus behind a fear of failure. And it's a focus that is all on me and myself rather than on God. And so I want to have us consider three, what I'm going to say is me-centered focuses or ways of viewing life that are behind this fear of failure. And I think we can see these even in the story we read with the Israelites. And so here, here's the first one. Fear of failure focuses on my success and failure rather than on faithfulness to God. Do you see the question the spies are kind of implicitly asking and inviting all the people of Israel to ask in the story? There's a couple of them, but one of them is this. Will we be able to take the land or not? Right, they're sizing up the land and the people in the land and they're asking, does it seem like we will succeed or fail if we try to take this land? Like how, how often do we evaluate life in that way? If I make this decision, if I try this thing, will I succeed or will I fail? And and yet the question they should have been asking that they weren't asking is simply this. Has God called us to take the land? Has God called us to take the land? And the answer to that would have been absolutely yes. Fear of failure says it is success or failure that ultimately matters. That's a really me-centered, Kyle-centered way of approaching life. Because what's behind that is ultimately what matters most is how I look. That if I succeed, I will look good. And if I fail, I will look bad. But what matters so much more than than your success, my success, or our failure is faithfulness to God. That's the lens through which we must view our lives. What has God called me to do? That the question needs to shift from, will I succeed or fail in this area if I step out or make this decision to, what does God want me to do? What does he want me to do? And though I may not even know 100%, I'll step out to the best of my ability and the best of my knowledge and trust him. Second is fear of failure focuses on my abilities rather than on God's abilities. Again, think about the, another question that the spies are kind of implicitly asking and inviting the people to ask. Can we take the land based on our size and our numbers? Can we take this land based on our weapons, what we've got versus what those people in the land have? They, they looked at their own ability, their, their own resources, their own weapons and said, no, no, we can't do it. In fact, did you catch what they compare themselves to? They look at the sons of Anak, however tall they are, and they said, we were only grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way, no way we can go against them. 
the, the question they should have been asking is, can God use even us to take that land? Can God use even us to take that land? And the answer is absolutely yes. Listen to what God says to the next generation as they stand on the verge of entering the promised land and how it compares to what we read in Numbers. Deuteronomy 9, 1 through 3, God says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan River today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Bigger, stronger, better. Cities great and fortified up to heaven a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? What's God's answer? Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised. Fear of failure looks at God something might want us to do and says, I'm not able to do that, so I won't try. Rather than saying, God, you can do that, so I'll try, but I desperately need your help. If I tell a three-year-old to dunk on a seven-foot-tall basketball net, there's one of two ways that three-year-old can respond to me. He can look up at me and say, that's too tall, I can't do it, and walk away. Or he can look up at me and say, that's too tall, you lift me up and I'll be able to do it. Both are rooted in the recognition, I can't do that. Yet the second way looks to the one who can dunk and says, lift me up and you can use even me to do that. The the question for us is not, can I do this based on my own abilities? Can Can I lead some ministry? Can I mentor someone else? Can I lead someone to Christ? Can I be a light to my coworkers? The, qu- the question is, can God use even me and work through me to do any of those things? And if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit in you, the answer is absolutely. Absolutely, he can. Third, fear of failure focuses on my comfort rather than on God's glory. Do you catch what the Israelites want to do instead of going into the land? What their, what their better option is in this case Let's go back to Egypt where we were slaves. What's interesting is if you track the story of the Israelites, this isn't the first time they say that. Every time they run into difficulty or trial, they say something like, oh, it just would have been better if God left us in Egypt where we were slaves. At least we were comfortable. At least we had fish. At least we knew what to expect. Let's go back to Egypt. But but we see this truth in the story of the Israelites. Comfort does not mean better. Comfort in our lives does not mean better. In the Israelites' case, to go back to what was comfortable would have been far worse. It would have been to go back to what was actually slavery. We, we live in a therapeutic culture today. And this is not just like outside the church. We inside the church are influenced by this as well. That would say the most important thing in life is your comfort and my comfort. That would have us seek to avoid 
all that might make us uncomfortable and chase after all that would add comfort to our lives. The, the, the great prize that, that the American dream and American culture tends to hold out for us is to be comfortable, as if that's the thing that ultimately matters. But, but the idea that comfort is most important is a lie. It's a lie. And it's a lie that will keep you and I enslaved and keep us from taking risks and sacrificing our comfort for what is actually far more valuable and important. The, the question for us should not be, how can I be the most comfortable? But rather, what is worth risking and sacrificing my own comfort for? Maybe think of it in this way. If I told you this morning, everyone in here, to go out this morning and start training for a 50-mile race and then run a 50-mile race, my guess is very few of us, myself included, would actually be willing to do that. Why? Because that's going to be really uncomfortable. <laughs> that's going to involve a lot of sweating, a lot of being sore, a lot of muscle cramps. A lot, like it's going to be really, really uncomfortable. And I don't want to go through all that discomfort to go run 50 miles. But my guess is, too, that if I told you this morning, if you go run a 50-mile race, I'll pay you a million dollars. You should, first of all, probably say, well, show me the money. Uh, and if I had it and was actually going to give it to you, my guess is very few of us would turn that offer down. Why? Because we'd be willing to give up a lot of comfort for the sake of a million dollars. The Bible tells us there's something, something infinitely more valuable than my personal temporary comfort. And what is it? God's kingdom, God's glory. Right? The, the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13, the man who gives up everything for the sake of one treasure, that we might give up everything for the sake of God's kingdom and glory and be wise, not fools, for doing that. Don't, don't be a slave to the lie that comfort is better. Be, be free to the truth that seeing, knowing, tasting, displaying, advancing God's glory in this world is infinitely better than any comfort we might experience in this life and worth sacrificing it for. Now, now that's getting into the next part of this morning, that if it's a me-centered focus that keeps us captive to the fear of failure, what are some God-centered truths that can free us from the fear of failure. And again, I, I want to give three this morning. Here's the first one. God always holds the outcome in his hands. Or God always holds the results in his hands, which, whichever you want to use there. Do, do you see how Joshua and Caleb try to convince the people to go in and take the land? Like, let's go. We can do this. First of all, I'm saying God's with us. He's bigger. He's better. But, but also they say in Numbers 14.8, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Saying, come on, can't you see? Like the results, they're in God's hand. Let's do what he's calling us to do and trust him with whatever the outcome is. That, that is the soil, I think, that a type of courage that's willing to risk, willing to take chances, and leave the results in God's hand ultimately grows from. Let me point out two other examples where we see this in the Bible. 
as ways that might stir in us just the, the seed of that type of bold faith. One is found in 2 Samuel, where Joab, David's commander, is fighting against some of the enemies of Israel. And he's fighting against them. And so maybe you can picture swords flashing, arrows flying through the sky, spears being thrown. And all of a sudden they realize we don't only have enemies in front of us, we've also got enemies behind us. We're surrounded. What are we going to do? And Joab gets his brother, pulls him aside, breaks up the men into two groups. And then he kind of gives this quick battle speech. And he says this, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you come help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Hear that? Let's go. Let's fight. Let's battle. And let's leave the results in God's hand. Or maybe the the image of battling isn't your image. And so we could jump to, to Queen Esther. Queen Esther is asked to go in before the king in order to seek his favor and ask that that the Jews wouldn't be killed in her day. And yet she knows that by entering into the king's presence without being summoned, she could be killed on the spot. So she sends a message to her uncle Mordecai and tells him to gather the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast, pray for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I'll do the same with my young women. And then she says, then I will go into the king, though it is against the law, And if I perish, I perish. You hear that? I'll risk my life and I may die, but I trust God with whatever the outcome or results are. Oh, oh, that we could grab hold of that type of view of life in our own lives to be able to say, I will take risks and know that whatever the result or outcome is, it's in God's good hands and I trust him. Because I know that even if I fail, he'll bring good from my failures. That's the second thing. God will bring good from our failures. The, the Bible is full of people who God calls to step out and take some risk with their lives. You know, the Bible is also full of people who fail miserably. And yet God ends up using that failure for both their good and his glory. Maybe you could just think of in your own time, what are examples of stories like that in the Bible? I didn't have time to, to put any in this morning. But, but I think you and I can look at our own endeavors, our own actions, our own decisions, and probably see lots of ways that we've failed or, or maybe we just think that we've failed, whether we actually have or not. Parents, you can probably see all the ways that you've failed as a parent. Teachers, you, you can probably see all the, the lessons that seem to go all wrong. Sunday school helpers, you, you can see the mornings where your class is just absolute chaos. S- small group leaders, maybe you see all the discussions that just crashed and burned. A- a- and maybe all of us have seen the ways where we tried to talk about Jesus or point him in some way, and we just feel like we're mumbling, stumbling, like, what did I just say there? And yet, in the midst of all of our failures, both perceived and real, God is still at work. Do you remember the Asbury revival from this past year at Asbury College? It kind of happened at Asbury College and then spread out to other colleges. Uh, it was this incredible 
uh, thing where God did this amazing work among people on different college campuses. The, the firsthand accounts and stories coming out or how God worked powerfully to transform people's lives. One of my favorite stories that came out of that is what God used to start that. Do you, do you know what God used to start that? The assistant soccer coach. So not even the head coach, the assistant. I don't know if they couldn't get the head coach or what, but the assistant gives a chapel sermon on love. And he said, after the sermon was over, as he got down, he thought, I totally whiffed that. And he sent a text to his wife immediately with these words. Latest stinker. I'll be home soon. (laughs) I wonder for us how many of us, there are times where we just feel like, I totally whiffed that. I totally messed that one up. Like, how we've fumbled and stumbled over our words, second guess what we've said or prayed, and yet God has actually used it in some really powerful way that maybe we'll never, ever get to see. When you try something and you just feel like, man, I failed miserably at that, we, we have the ability to step back and say, God, that seemed like a big failure, but you can use the biggest failures. And so I pray that you'd use that for your glory. And, and even more than that, we might recognize that God often allows us to fail in order to humble us, in order to remind us of how dependent we are on him and to remind us that we are not sufficient in ourselves. And God loves to, this is the third truth, God loves to work through weak, inadequate, insufficient people to demonstrate his power. That right there is a truth that I can't beat into my own head and my own heart enough. Like, can I, can I just be honest with you for a moment and tell you that every step of the way in my own life where God's called me to do something, whether it was teaching Sunday school or volunteering in a youth ministry or helping out with VBS or or becoming a youth pastor, leading a ministry, teaching students, preaching on Sunday mornings, Every single step of the way, I felt weak, inadequate, and insufficient to do what I feel like God is asking or calling me to do. And I guess there's lots of us in here who feel the exact same way. And I think one of the great temptations for us is that when we feel that way, we think it must be a sign that God doesn't want us to do what he's asking us to do. That surely God would look for someone stronger, better gifted, with more knowledge than me. He doesn't want me to do that. That is a lie. That is an absolute lie. Paul, in speaking of his ministry, says in 2 Corinthians 5.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Hear that? I'm not sufficient for what God's called me to, but he is sufficient. Paul, in speaking of his weakness, says that God's response to his weakness is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you hear that? I'm too weak for this, God. God says, okay, but my power is best displayed when you get weak. Peter says when God calls us to serve in ministry, we don't serve because we're adequate. Rather, we serve with all the strength and energy that God supplies then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Hear that? I'm not adequate for this, 
but God will supply all the strength you need for it. The, the lie that weakness, inadequacy, and insufficiency disqualifies us from serving, from leading, from teaching, from caring, from loving, is keeping an army of Christians from stepping out into what God might ask us to do and instead having us sidelined because we think there must be someone better for this than me. While all along God is saying, I love to use weak, inadequate, insufficient people. Not because we are great, but because he is so great. Might picture it this way. If, if I want to show you how strong I am, and you can laugh if you want because I'm not strong at all, but if I want to show you how strong I am, I don't cut down a tree with a chainsaw. I cut down a tree with a little hatchet, and then I flex as that tree falls to the ground. If God wants to show how strong and powerful he is, he doesn't use the best available to advance his kingdom. He uses weak, little old, insufficient me and you. And then he flexes and says, look at what I can do even through that person because of how great I am. The, the, the more we get our eyes off ourselves and onto God, the more we'll be freed from the fear, fear of failure and freed to take risks with our lives and to see God at work as we do. But, but there's one more incredible truth that I think we need to, to see, and it's this. The gospel gives us the freedom to fail. The gospel gives us the freedom to fail in our lives. One of the sweet truths of the gospel is that you and I are free to fail because of what Christ has already done for us. I, I think behind the fear of failure, there are often two big things. One, we're, we're afraid to fail because we think our successes or our failures are ultimately what define us. Or, or two, we're afraid to, to risk and fail because we think somehow we might mess up our future if we do. And the gospel brings freedom from both of those ways of thinking. Because first of all, it tells us Christ's success is what defines us, not our successes or failures. Do you remember what Paul says in Galatians 2.20? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith in him. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, I, I don't worry about myself anymore. I, 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 it doesn't matter to me whether I succeed or fail. Those things don't define me because Christ lives in me. Jesus succeeded where every single other person failed. And if your faith is in Christ, he now credits all of his success to you. And as a result, we're free to fail. We are free to fail because your failures don't define you. No matter how many times you fail, even if all you ever do in your life is fail, you are not a failure in Christ. His success is your success. His victory is your victory. So go ahead and try something for him and fail because you and I are free to. And, and then second, we might see that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. I, I think we're afraid of deciding wrong, making the wrong decision, pursuing something in our lives that might be wrong, committing to something that we might make the wrong commitment, and somehow making a mess of our future as a result. 
and I don't want to underplay that like, yes, our decisions and our commitments and our choices and our actions all have consequences in, in this life. Absolutely. But this fear can paralyze so many people, especially so many young people today, and says, if you don't make the right decision about your job, your career, your spouse, your, where you live, and all sorts of other things, you're going to mess up your life completely as a result. And as a result, so many people are left with an inability to commit, an inability to make decisions out of fear that they might screw something up. But God says, if you're a Christian and your faith is in Christ, then the most important thing about your future is secure, and nothing can separate you from his love for you. So Paul says in Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including failure, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that have to do with our failure and our fear of messing up our future? It means you can't ultimately mess up your future in Christ if your faith is in Christ. Whether it's tomorrow, five years from now, or 10,000 years from now, the most important thing is God's love for you and nothing can separate you from God's love. And so that means even when we fail most horribly in our lives, we're still held by God's love and our future is still secure in him. Over the past uh, year, my, my family's gone to Sky Zone multiple times, I think three or four times. And you know, if you know Sky Zone, you know they have all these trampolines, and my son loves jumping on the trampolines, uh, and I do as well. I think I go just as much for my own sake as his. But if you've been there before, you know that one of the things they have is this place where their trampoline's set up, and then there's a foam pit on the other side of the trampolines. And the foam pit invites you to jump and take some risk, right? To jump and try something, to try a flip or a double flip or a triple flip or, or in my case, maybe just a belly flop. And it invites you to do that because it says you can try something and you can fail miserably and you can know that the landing is ultimately soft. The, the gospel in some ways is like a foam pit for our lives, where God invites us, try something, do something, take some risks for my kingdom and in following Christ. And you can know that whatever the outcome, whether you fail or succeed, fall or stand up, no matter what, the landing is soft because ultimately you are held in my arms and it's my love that defines you. So I want to close this morning just with, with this question. Where might God be calling you to take a risk in your life. Whether big or small, it doesn't matter how, what, how big or small you think it is. Just what's one thing that God might be calling you to take a risk, make a decision, take a step, do something. Or, or it, maybe what's one area that you feel like, I have been taking this risk and I don't know what's going to happen and God wants you to keep just keep trusting him and keep taking that risk with your life as you follow him. And maybe with that, I would just say, what's keeping you back from doing that? What's keeping you back from stepping out and taking some risk? And, and if you're someone who says, man, I, I don't know what risks God might want me to take, can I just invite you to, to pray this? God, where do you want me to take a risk? Show me. 
and just see how he might answer that prayer. Father, we praise you for being the God who holds us in your hands, who holds our future in your hands, who looks at us not according to our successes or failures, but according to Christ and all he's done. God, I pray that we would be people who do not shrink back in fear, for you've not given us a spirit of fear, but rather I pray that we would be people who step out taking risks to love other people, to advance your kingdom and the gospel, and as a result that we might see your power on display through us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.